0: Yeah, uh, I was born in Montreal, Pratt Avenue.
1: Me too. My father was the reference librarian at the JPL, so he had to walk to work.
2: You're like Yiddish. My father was
1: the original zamler for Montreal,
2: and I have cousins in Montreal too. My cousin was a war resistor in Vietnam, and he accepted the invitation to go north. Yeah, and my
3: my great grandfather was a a pushcart peddler in Montreal, so you know, really, Uh, really, yeah.
1: This is Bonjour Chai, the Over the Hill edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltbovi in Toronto. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we are talking about talking, opinions, advice, gossip. We speak to the folks behind the forward's wildly popular Bintel Brief column, and we discuss Jonah Hill's misdeeds and public outs in general, plus, of course, nachas and more. Stay tuned. Phoebe, how's your week been?
3: Well, we found something to keep our children busy last weekend. Um, we went for the first time ever to the big zoo in Toronto. So there's a small zoo in High Park, which is not that far from where we live, that has llamas, capybaras, which once famously escaped from that zoo, and a, and like sheep. It has a lot of animals, but not. it's not like a big, big zoo with sort of more exotic animals. But we went to the big one. We finally did it.
1: I, I just heard a joke um, about zoos. So... Um when they opened up the biblical zoo right in Jerusalem uh so the first person going through the, to get a private tour was David Ben-Gurion of course you know they want to show mm-hmm. off what's what's so special what's amazing um and they get because it's the biblical zoo they have an enclosure where they you, there's a lion actually lying down with a lamb um <laughs> and he's amazed at this he goes this is amazing clearly like it shows that we can do this like we're able to have a, like a messianic age Israel is ushering this in and he goes to the zookeeper like how did you manage to do this and he goes oh we put in a new lamb every day.
3: Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, speaking of lions and lambs, um, Jonah Hill, is he the lion <laughs> or the lamb in this in this story?
3: Oh, boy. So, Jonah <laughs> Tell Hill. Tell us about this story. Um, well, I'm first going to give the context, the Jewish context for Jonah Hill, which is surprisingly rich in layers. Um, so, Jonah Hill is not somebody I had given a tremendous amount of thought to until really, like, working at the CJN and um, covering kind of Jewish zeitgeist stories lately so kanye west you know apparently uh came around to jews after seeing jonah hill in the movie 21 jump street he posted about this so i do not particularly identify with jonah hill i'm gonna just say it um nor had i ever considered him a particular sort of hollywood heartthrob to be um to, to whom one might aspire to romance. However, he does apparently have a love life, which I have learned about recently, um which is that so he has a partner now and uh, apparently a child with this partner, but this before that about a year or a couple of years ago, for about a year he went out with a surfer named Sarah Brady. Who posted to Instagram some screenshots of tweets that she claims were evidence of Jonah Hill's emotional abuse of her, and the tweets basically are about um, how Jonah Hill has boundaries per per Jonah Hill uh, in people he dates and in the women he dates and. One of and basically he felt that his girlfriend at the time was violating those boundaries by posing in bathing suits. This girlfriend being a surfer, that is what she yes, does. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, so he doesn't like her surfing with men posing in a bathing suit or hanging around with female friends who he considers bad news um, from her wild recent past or something like this. Wild is now making me, of course, think of zoo animals. So I'm imagining that she's like cavorting with the zoo animals in some very literal sense. But no, it sounds like um, just human beings. But basically, all of this really broke the internet as these things do because there's this question. Is it, first, one possibility, wrong to share the private messages from an ex which is what um the new yorker television critic emily nussbaum argued on twitter unless there's something in those texts that's really like you know pertinent and that everybody needs to know about is that some sort of violation or conversely is it um emotional abuse to tell your partner that they can't um wear a bathing suit and uh in a social media post or whatever this was um so yeah a lot of people feel very strongly about this on both sides um i'm not sure that i feel very strongly about it on either side but i do think that the issues it raises are interesting and that there's a a jewish angle if not several of them so one would be um gossip which I hear, Avi, there is some Jewish law about. Is that right?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, the Jewish law is uh, uh, Lashon Hara, gossip, tailbearing. Lashon Hara literally means it means bad speech, right? Um, bad speech that is evil, speech that is wrong. Um, it has come to mean uh, talebearing uh, saying things that are negative about um, people around you that are designed to slander them. Um, there's many, many laws about it. In, in the early 20th century, there was uh, a rabbi who wrote a book called The Hafez Chaim, which was an in-depth uh, discussion of all the laws, and it's become an incredibly popular book for people to read and to study all these laws to figure out what should I be able to say, what should I not be able to say, and... Um, I think that there's something good in maintaining, um, you know, the ability to speak uh, of more elevated things and not to gossip about other people and to t- tail bear to whether it's true, whether it's not. And there's, again, I'm not going to get into the detailed laws. As a kid, it's such a big deal when you're growing up in the religious community. I don't know if you know this, right? That there's like a ton of songs about Lashon Hara, right? I can even play some of them for you for now. It's like here.
0: That's why I should
2: Get the hang of it.
1: What's the thing that always
2: does us hard? What's the
1: thing that sounds the alarm? What's the thing that makes us feel bad? What's the thing that makes us sham
2: sad?
1: Right, this is like this is, is like for for the eight-year-olds, this is like a big deal when you get hear these songs and you're told don't speak Lush and Heart, don't speak back about people. Um what I find fascinating is that the reason why there are so many songs for kids, there's so much discussion around gossip is that it's almost like a natural human instinct, right? If well, we are societal people, yes. right, we, we are by nature wanting to talk about other people um, yes. and, and what's going on. Um, are you supposed to say something negative about somebody else? No. Um, if it has a specific reason and it is going to help the other individual in a meaningful way, then that's considered acceptable, right? If you, Talk to your friend and over coffee, and you're telling them, Oh, I'm about to go and do this big investment with this guy, Bernard Madoff, right? He's, a, I'm about to invest <laughs> with him, and your friend decides not to tell you that he's like a Ponzi schemer because it's Lush and Hara. That's a problem. He, you I should see. be told that. So that right? was
3: what I wanted to ask about specifically. Um, so arguments have been made, and I see the point, and I kind of share the view to some extent that basically the maligning of gossip is. Rooted to some extent in sexism, in the sense that the talking of women gets called gossip in a way that the talking of men does not. So that's one angle. I have heard that even okay. from a Jewish angle.
1: I've heard Jewish scholars okay. say that this so was a way of like mm-hmm. saying that this is speech that is for certain people mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and oh, we men do business things and that's acceptable or whatever right. it might so be. So that's or, one angle,
3: yeah. but then to sort of build on that is also this idea that it's more specifically a way that women have historically of protecting one another like the whisper networks like Mm -hmm. me too style so that there is value the argument is in sharing not just what jonah hill um texted in order to warn women off jonah hill specifically because i don't think that this is going to be pertinent for that many women, how it is to date Jonah Hill specifically, but more like these are warning signs. And I think that was how Jonah Hill's ex-girlfriend explained, sort of excused, uh, you know, how how she justified sharing these texts is, look, these are red flags. If a boyfriend is doing this, you should watch out. And that was her justification. And I think what's interesting about this is that I think today there isn't really this whole thing of just like celebrity gossip for the heck of it. And I think it always gets this kind of ethical justification tacked onto it. Sometimes I think that's understandable, sometimes less understandable. But um, yeah, that seems to be something that has shifted since like the early 2000s, I would say.
1: You know, one of the classic examples that discusses this idea of lush and hard when it's allowed is specifically with regards to a relationship, right? If, If you're going to marry somebody and you ask somebody about, you know, anything you know about this person. And you're going to say to yourself, well, I'm not going to say anything about this person that's negative because it's Lashonhara, right? That's a problem. You should say, speak up and say something about the person. But I think that that's a highly limited case of like where somebody is going to go and about to make a bad decision that you know it's a bad decision. The other person doesn't then great. Right. In this situation, as you said, this person is not doing it to warn off other people off of Jonah Hill. Right. right? Um, this person is, you know, clearly doing it almost in a vendetta. It's almost like mm-hmm. I want to get back at Jonah. I want to show everybody what kind of a dick he is. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's I mean, that's a whole different set of. Issues well, that's of not like what she's claiming. She's yeah.
3: claiming that she's doing it because these are warning signs in a relationship, and she's helping other women. So and some women cared, have felt, some women cared, have taken If you cared, then you can scrub
1: the guy's name, and you can say, "Listen, I've ha- I've been in relationships where this type of stuff has happened." Okay. Right.
3: So the counter argument there is nobody cares. She's a nobody in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, she's I, as are we all, you know what I mean? She's not an A-list celebrity. He is, and she's doing this to get the word out. So what I have seen argued is that this is helpful to women generally because it ter- it blows it up into a big story and that you would not be able to spread this message nearly as far if you're a semi-professional surfer talking about your unnamed ex-boyfriend.
1: Yeah, I I'm really ambivalent about that one. I think that the potential for like, first of all, like, I mean I'm not gonna get into whether this is emotionally abusive or not. I just think I just think he's a bad person. He seems like a dick. Like he, like that's what it is. He just seems like a like why would you wanna date this person? Um, sure, but now I know this only because of this woman. Well, I
3: guess what I keep being sort of stuck on is in the specific text messages themselves, he's kind of saying, If you act in these ways, I won't date you. And what I'm trying to figure out is how where that ranks as a threat. Like Okay, what if the answer is Jonah Hill won't date you? When I read this story, I identified with two people. I identified with the woman because, you know, I, I'm i also, you know, a long-since-happily-married person myself right now, but, you know, I used to be a young woman dating and so forth, and yes, I encountered things of this nature, and I, I so I identified with the woman, but I also thought, you know could you take a snippet of my life and say, wow, what a horrible person Phoebe is because she was in that terrible, grumpy mood that one time and, it you know, like, let's make that go viral. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's a way that anybody at their lowest point could go viral for being an awful person. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've ever done that, but I'm sure that there'd be a way to find anything in anybody. And I guess I think the problem is you can kind of set a precedent if you say, like, one bad moment in somebody's life especially during a messy breakup is does that yeah i I think it's tricky and you don't want the bar to be too low for that i think there's enough sort of unambiguous abuse out there that you don't really have to call this I, i don't know it's tricky because a lot of women did respond by saying like yes i've lived through this 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 is what it looks like
1: yeah okay well let's leave it at that point and um let's move on to larger advice giving We just had uh, a great opportunity to talk to the author and the uh, historian uh, of the Bintel Brief, uh, which is a wildly popular column in the foreword. It comes out online. It has a very long history. We had a rollicking good time with this. Uh, Stay tuned for that interview right after we hear from our sponsor.
2: Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlu.com, visit atelierlu for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlu.com.
1: Phoebe, you saw a column uh, from the ethicist uh, Kwame okay. Anthony Apia that caused the entire Jewish world to go at Twitter. And. Sure. Um, when you started talking about this, we started realizing that like, hey, you know, there's a lot of history about uh, advice columns and they're perpetually in uh, whatever magazine, whatever newspaper we're in and long before the ethicist was Kwame Anthony Appiah, there was uh, Randy Cohen, oh, who certainly. was a Jewish ethicist, uh, and before that we had probably the most famous powerhouse twins um, of advice column, Columny, um, Anne Landers and Dear Abby, Anne Landers, Esther Pauline Letterer Friedman um, that's a, that's a name with some heft where you can get advice from it um, so like we really, before all all of that, right, was a little column called a bintel brief, dispensing wisdom in Yiddish from the uh from the Derforwert before it was even the forward. Um, and ever since then, the forward has been dispensing a little bit of Yiddish wisdom to the masses. And we decided to go back to the source and find out about this and about columns, about advice and how it all works. So with us today is Beth Harpaz, who is uh the author of the Bintel Brief uh currently, and Hannah Polak, who is the archivist of the Jewish Forward the Jewish Daily Forward, or the forwards or however, all the other iterations of the Forward. Welcome to Bonjour Chai. It's great to have you both.
0: Shalom Aleichem. Thank you. Aleichem
1: Shalom. If we can start, um, what I love about advice columns um, is that the people who write them have zero training in being an advice columnist. And, and it's always, there's at least one column that talks about how you got to be an advice columnist and how they selected and and all of that. So Beth, how did you get to, uh, to the point where you're writing a mental brief?
2: So I've always loved advice columns from the time I was a little girl. Always read Dear Abby and Ann Landers, you know. Um, and I, I subscribe to the Washington Post just so I can read their advice columns. I write two advice columns all the time. I've had several published by Social Cues, Phil Galenis in the New York Times. I even had one published by the fashion advice columnist do you
3: can you can you tell us what oh you sure to um, about. It,
2: yeah uh, first i'll do the fashion advice one i was looking okay. for a job i got laid off during the pandemic and all the interviews were on zoom and i was like what do you wear to a zoom interview um that was the fashion <sighs> advice columnist she suggested i wear a black jacket i didn't anyway um <laughs> for, Phil, for for the social cues i said what do you do when you're in the theater this is a very new york question and the person sitting next to you falls asleep and starts to snore like, am I supposed to like smack them, like poke them, ignore it, whatever? And
3: this would happen in Toronto, too, but people would just act different about it.
2: Well, what would they do in Toronto?
3: Nobody does anything. Let people, just be. Say, say, yeah. people just stay still and don't say anything. It's super hard to get used to. So I'm a native New Yorker living in Toronto now, and I, I find it bizarre. It's a weird culture here. But anyway, yeah, well,
2: so as you could imagine, Social <laughs> cues said it's fine to just give them a little nudge okay. and say, you know, you fell asleep. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, I joined the forward a little more than a year ago and, uh, I think they were looking for some kind of new energy, uh, for Bintel Brief. Um, and you know, I'm kind of a Yenta. I have two kids. I have a gigantic family. We're always in each other's business. I'm a New Yorker. I'm in, I'm in the business of strangers. Like a British guy was ordering a bagel in front of me one time in a bagel store. He asked for jam and I just started yelling at him like, you're in New York. Do not put jam on that bagel, okay? You gotta get with the program, dude. Um, so being that kind of personality, the boss said like, Oh, I think you'd be a good person to like help us out with bento." And the way we actually, I kind of manage the column. I'm, I'm the macher or the bubby. We have like a collective of writers. There's five of us. When, when letters come in, uh, we kind of chew them over and somebody volunteers. I write about half of them and then the other, uh, we happen to be all women. Uh, the others take on, uh, the other ones. I'm probably the, o- I'm the oldest person in the group. Um, so, you know, we have millennials and, and Gen Xers. So depending on the demographics or the life experience in the letter, somebody picks it who kind of has a feel for it. Some of the letters are very Jewish questions. You know, I don't want to circumcise my child. Will they still be Jewish? Um, and in those cases, we seek a rabbi's help. Some of them are just like life problems. I'm retired and I don't know how to face the rest of my life. What do we do? So how do I make that Jewish? I give them 18 ways. To embrace life, because 18 is life. Sure, Are there
3: people who seek advice specific, like non-Jews even, who seek advice from Jews? And I'm thinking specifically of a Seinfeld where the opposite is true, where Estelle Costanza thinks that Jerry's girlfriend is Chinese and then learns that she's actually Jewish and says, I'm not taking advice from some girl from Long Island. <laughs> um, and it's like... One of the most memorable lines to be from Seinfeld. So I'm just wondering, are there people who think that, who expect to, who like go to Jews for advice?
2: I have, in my tenure, I have not seen a letter from a non-Jewish person. We, Hannah, do you remember we published, Rahul published in the last year um, a, his, a letter from the archives from a Christian woman, but it was like from the 40s or the 30s or something. She she married a Jewish man okay. and there was a, an issue in the family um but it hasn't happened in my in my tenure.
0: It, it is it's not uncommon though that was a big question, right? Especially, you know, the Bintel ran all the way into the 80s and uh definitely the 60s and 70s uh were a lot of those kind of questions. P- you know, what we call intermarriage or Well that seems to have relations. come up
3: again. It seems like you had a dramatic question recently, is that right? About um a, a controversial one.
2: Oh yeah, that that is the best read in terms of page views and social media, Bintel of all time. So a woman who had converted before marrying was divorcing her Jewish husband. And the husband said, you're divorcing me. You can't be Jewish anymore. <laughs> and she wrote us a letter and said, I love being Jewish. I love my shul. I love my rabbi. What, you know, what should I do? Um, and one of my colleagues, uh, answered the, the letter very, uh, Compassionately and with great, um, you know, sort of scholarship, uh, saying that, you know, rabbis believe that a convert is actually a Jew before they convert, that in their soul they're Jewish. And once you go through the rituals of conversion and you embrace Judaism, no one can take that away from you. It doesn't matter if you're married to a Jewish person or not. It was a beautiful. Heartwarming, but why was it controversial?
3: Letter. Because to me, I read that letter and I thought, okay, the, the ex-husband's a not very nice person. What what was the controversy?
2: You know, we never know, like, what is in the mind of the letter writer? Like, why is she writing this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, our sense was that she wanted reassurance she wanted to know that she was welcome in the Jewish community, that she wouldn't be ostracized in some way. And maybe she also wanted to smack the X in the face in a public forum. I mean, we don't use names, of course. But what was most beautiful about this was the outpouring from readers on social media, on Twitter, on Reddit, on Facebook, in our inbox email, um, everywhere, on Instagram. Hundreds of comments from people all over the country saying are you in Detroit? Come to shul with me. Are you in New Jersey? Are you in Los Angeles? I welcome you into my community. Of course, you're Jewish. They were quoting um, the Big Lebowski. Uh, he he divorced his Jewish wife, and he's still Jewish, and says all these funny things. I mean, it was they. They made up a song to the lyrics of, to the tune of West Side Story. Once you're a Jew, you're a Jew all the way from your first, whatever, to your last, whatever. Um, so it was like a beautiful thing. So I don't know that controversial is exactly the right way to put it, but it was certainly a beautiful Embrace of Bintel and you know everything that Bintel is about.
1: I, I love this the, the the way in which people come together. Right, the uh, the advice readers, um, people who don't write into advice columns, are just as much part of the fabric of the advice column as the in, the two people writing and uh, responding to it. And that way, it's very Talmudic, right? You have two people: so a person asking a question, a person answering a question, and then everybody else reading it for hundreds of years and and doing something with it and creating commentary about it. My my favorite thing about Bintel Brief is that it got so big it got turned into a book which got turned into a graphic novel which got turned into a play in Yiddish which starred um, in one of the most recent Montreal productions my wife and my daughter My, my, my wife was singing about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire and this is how Advice and people tell, helping other people lives on um, forever and ever. What has happened? Why has Bintel Brief lasted so long and turned into an archive of all of these ideas? For, according in your mind, yeah,
0: great question. Um, you know, can I just uh, call back a little bit to the drama of uh, when I was coming up in Montreal in the late seventies? By the time I was a teenager, the thing, the play to go to for Jewish folks in Montreal was, of course, the Bintel Brief yep. that Dora Wasserman had just yep. interpreted. And created. I think she was maybe the first person to actually create a play out of it. And that, that went forever at the Sadie sure. Bronfen. The it, former. Like I said, it was Sadie just
1: Bronfen. on a few, few months ago. It's now the Siegel Center, but it is the Dora Wasserman Yiddish Theater and uh, it lives on. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it, it was. It started, like, I, I think the, the short answer is because it hit a chord in human nature that is with us forever. It's a love of story, right? We know that that's... That's human. And also um, the need to express your troubles, maybe a very Jewish kind of um, expression, but at the same time, universal. So um OpCon in 1903, he actually tried to start the Bintel because the forward building was always open to the public 24-7. And people started to come like right off the boat. Literally, there was also um, you could have your mail sent to the forward. So you could come and, you know, you just got off the boat and there would be letters waiting for you. Your relatives, family reunification was a huge part. That's of not a
1: service world. that you guys still offer, right? I can't send packages <laughs> to the forward and pick them up next time in town.
0: Yeah. Also because of digital, there's not so many packages going around anymore. But in my day, when I started at the forward in the, the late 90s, uh, we were still we still had that kind of function. All kinds of folks still kind of came. Um, but of course that, that's kind of changed. And I think because of, um, probably digital culture. I would and, imagine and, security
3: also. I mean, uh, yeah. when yeah. I, I was yes. there, I remember yes. like you have to show yeah. a badge and so forth to yeah. get in. So
0: that changes. Yeah. The, but that that was, I think probably after the towers fell too. So it was a little bit different. Well before. after, yes.
1: What's yeah. fascinating about this is that like it starts because, you know, I love the term greener, right? Right. Short for greenhorn, right. They're people who don't know how they're to function in a new society, right? So they're writing these letters to Bintel, to a Bintel brief, right. As to be able to say like, Hey, you know, I don't know what, uh, uh, what to do in this situation and the enduring legacy of all of these advice columns is that it reminds us that we're all greeners in some way or another. Right. We don't know how to act in the theater. Sometimes We don't know how to act, how to dress in a certain ways. We don't know all of these things. We, we think that we know a lot of, a lot of stuff and we realize that there's Obviously, a lot of stuff that we don't know.
3: Back, can I push back on that a little? Cause I Please. think a lot of letters to advice columns, um, are kind of more this, like, I know I'm right. Can you can you tell me that that's true? And I was wondering sort of what the ratio is, like, or most of the letters that you get um, from people who already think they know the answer and you may have to push back against them, or are they people, like, genuinely seeking um,
2: help? Yeah. Are, are we allowed to use naughty words on this podcast? Oh, yes, yes. of course. Okay, yes. so you know that A-I...
3: Yes, A-I-T-A.
2: A-I-T-M, or am I the asshole here, yes. right? Yes. So that's a lot of letters okay. to advice columns are like people looking for validation. Like, I did this and somebody told me I was wrong. You know, mm-hmm. what do you think? But you know what they want you to say. Mm-hmm. They want you to say, oh, of course you're right. We've had a, f- we have a few like that. I think more of our letters are genuinely like from a seeker. Mm-hmm. You know, I am, I am at a crossroads and I don't know what to do. And I mean, some of the the ones that get the most traction with readers certainly are like Sisters who haven't spoken for 50 years. Like we had one lady who like her sons took all her money and she is about to be evicted. That was, How do so, I get my that money was so back? That
3: was so bleak. I read that one yeah. and it was. Oh my God.
2: I know. Oh, that was, I know. That was um, sad you one. know, so I mean, a lot of times they're really like mm, heartrending. We, I have, we have a couple in queue that I haven't answered yet. There's one from this guy who says he has had this friend who's a woman for a long time platonic and they go out to lunch and one day at lunch she said to him like you interrupt me all the time I don't want to talk to you anymore and like that was the end like she just cut off their relationship and he's you know he describes this whole thing it's clear from the letter that he's overbearing and can't shut the hell up and you know it's a mansplaining thing Didn't and they it turn was this definitely into like
1: the Banshees of Inishirin right that's exactly, right, the exactly.
2: it was exactly. It was really like am I am I they also and like yeah dude you are we haven't answered that one yet but um, I mean, we're going to have to find a way to tell him, like, your friend actually did you a favor by telling you to, you know, shut up. Shut up. Like, you probably have alienated, like, half the people you know so, because you can't shut up. Not to
3: interrupt, you know. but one technical question. You do get actual letters because a lot of people suspect that advice columnists are just writing the letters themselves.
2: It's a great question. Um I will say when I came on it seemed like I don't think any people on staff weren't writing the letters but there was a lot more like oh can everybody just ask around and maybe you know someone who has a problem who can write a letter and like i i, don't, I mean i I worked for the Associated Press for 30 years. We don't do stuff like that. We're journalists. We we are transparent. We are who we say we are. And so, you know, we at the moment we have enough letters coming in that we don't have to scrounge around. We can't even get through the ones that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I have heard. I have no confirmation of this. That in the early days of Bintel, that Abkahan, that the forward founding editor, wrote some of the letters because he wanted. to to explain something to the audience about life in America. And he wanted to make that clear. And I did get a letter from someone who said her father used to write in fake letters just for like the ha ha of well, it. I mean, I,
3: okay. I love that. I've
1: heard Dan Savage talk about how his job, half the job is to suss out what the fake letters are and to like, yeah. leave those on the, uh, the, the cutting room floor before getting to it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I have a pretty good antenna. I I don't. I haven't read anything that seems like it were being. But does it even matter
3: because someone might actually have that problem, right? It, like, yeah, if it's, it's a possible, possible enough.
0: I well, know. I think you know. Can I just jump in on the yeah. other side of that? Um, this is true to the Bintle, that if an issue was, if a letter came in and the issue was considered um, um, pressing enough or of interest enough, whether that be political or domestic, they would flip it into a column. You know, they would, they would just publish the letter as, as sort of an as told to issue and the writer would sort of write about it. So. Um, there's definitely that kind of energy to it. And in the beginning, I know this too, that Ab Kahn, he ran it for three years and then he said, you know what, it was getting too much and he passed it off. But there was a co-writer who kind of invented the Bintel with Khan in like between 1903 to 1906 when they published the first one, they were experimenting and that's Leon Gottlieb. He's like a lesser known, um, very acclaimed, uh, Yiddish novelist, writer, journalist, and, um, political activist. And he was, um, sort of Khan's assistant in inventing the Bintel brief.
2: And, you know, you mentioned the books, there are two collections of Bintel letters, which you can order online. The earlier, which is pre-war, so it's really the immigrant generation. Um, Those letters are very much, how do I manage my life in America? There are things like, you know, I work 16 hours a day in a factory and the boss is exploiting us. What do we do? There was a letter from people who had been detained at Ellis Island for months um you know without any communication with the outside world somehow they got a letter to bintle and the forward intervened in their case there were letters from women whose husbands had abandoned them you know with children and they were destitute um and so these were like real issues facing this you know immigrant generation living in poverty trying to figure out their way in a new land the second book is much more like post-war, like we've moved into the middle class. There so were things like my wife died. I remarried. My children don't like my second wife or I sent my daughter to the best schools. I thought I was doing the right thing and now she wants to get a job instead of staying home to raise the children or my son fell in love with a shiksa. What am I going to do? You know, it, was, it wasn't like life and death. I'm locked speaking in on a that, factory. this is
3: actually kind of opening up the possibility to uh, segue to that New York Times column. uh I would really like us to talk about that um so the ethicist did indeed receive a column from somebody whose mother a grown-up whose mother and stepfather have preemptively explained that they will disinherit any of their children who do not marry somebody who's um orthodox according to their um preferred definitions thereof um so not a non-jew at all but like It could be that they marry somebody Jewish, but not Jewish enough. But basically, um, the letter writer writes that their own spouse is Jewish enough. So this is not on their behalf, but that they have middle-aged siblings who the letter writer believes are literally remaining unmarried because of this. And that just, um, yeah, everything about this kind of blew my mind because I just thought, like, are these people who are actually, like, if, if the letter writer thinks that, these siblings are remaining unmarried because of this will. That mean that implies that they like have partners. They're not marrying or something like that. Because otherwise, how would you even know that? I don't know. But there, I just there are so many angles, and I just I could go on. I want to hear what you all think about it because it was. Um...
2: It was a lot. Well, the, I mean, I read the ethicist obsessively. And I, by the way, I also read like all 3,000 reader comments. I mean, of it's course, ridiculous. Of course. You know, the New York I,
3: Times comments, but especially <laughs> to something like that. This is
1: yeah. the main export of New York City as a device.
3: <laughs> right? Reader comments
2: if, in the New if, York Times. If
1: the, if the main – I had somebody once tell me that the main export of New Jersey is Cousins – right then the, the main export of manhattan is advice
2: <laughs> okay that's good so but that said the is kind of drives me crazy because i feel like he never lands you know what i mean he's like well this and well that and you know and part of an advice column is trying to divine like what what is the writer what does the writer want from me what's the you question know? And behind I, the question Right. And so like in this case, what I mean, what do you think the writer wanted? Did she want the ethicist to say your parents are jerks? Did she want the ethicist to I mean, I don't know. My personal take, which is maybe not the ethical, like what are the philosophical ramifications here is like if people are not marrying the person they love because they are holding out for money, what does that say about them? I mean, I could, personally, I could never live my life that way and I wouldn't want to marry someone who lived their life that way. On the other hand, marriage depends is a patriarchal... It uh, well, I?
3: Can I just, the, uh, the so inheritance A little theory, <laughs> a little theory um, that I did uh, put into my uh, Canadian Jewish News column on this was, do we even know that this is a lot of money? I have a theory that there's like 50 cents at stake <laughs> here... <laughs> And that this is just that the parents are being manipulative, the children being perhaps, you know, a bit, I don't know if greedy is the word whatever, a little too money focused, perhaps, if they are overly thinking about this. And that the whole thing is going to, the the what it's going to turn out to be is there's like some change under the couch cushion. And congratulations, this one child married somebody who's Jewish enough. Here are your 50 cents. Congratulations. Um, also,
2: like, enjoy. if it really bothers her that much, once she gets the inheritance, she can redistribute it. There's no reason that she can't make it right if she thinks it's well, wrong. Well, unless so, they're going
3: to distribute it to somebody else, unless they have some other plan for that money.
2: I guess. I, I don't know. I mean, I thought the whole thing was a little bit like bizarre. I mean, as as far as like, is it right for the parents? I mean, I I don't think it's right. On the other hand, you're allowed to do whatever you want with your money. Well, I'm you not sure. You could give I it all to charity. Some... Lots of people do. Yeah. I had an aunt who had no children and nine nieces and nephews, and she left all of her money to one of those nine and no, none of the other said a word like that was her choice, her money, her choice. Cool. What do you think, Hannah?
0: I guess a couple of things. One, I was like, you, you know, the thing about the Bintel and what we were talking about earlier, why it struck such a chord among people and it lasted forever and stuff is, is exactly this. Like, I am sure, although I cannot cite them, there are millions of these in the old forward. And and though there are two books published in English, just bear in mind that there are probably hundreds of thousands of these letters in Yiddish that didn't get chosen or translated that are just as piquant and relevant and touching and stuff. So for the Yiddish readers out there or for the people who want to learn Yiddish, this is a great enticement. Like, go, because then you can read all the bintel in the back issues. And maybe a new book will come out and Beth will edit it. But... Uh, that said, can I just, I just want to say when I was, um, when we were, when I was uh, thinking about this uh, question and reading it in the ethicist, I actually jumped into the old Bintle just to see what I could pull up, and uh, in 1954 okay, not completely um, um, analogous, but analogous in the sense that a woman wrote in and it became a Bintle adjacent it became a whole story, they gave her half a page this is, mind you, on a broadsheet, this is a ton of text, and then it leaked over, you know, it had continued on page two, and anyway. Um, And the story, of course, goes all the way back to Eastern Europe, World War I, woman gets married to someone she's not crazy about, has, um, in in the course of World War I, she's smuggling for a living, and she meets, you know, she has a lover who she really cares for. Anyways, World War II comes around, they're all separated, she's still in her original marriage, and they've managed to immigrate. Long story short, old lover survives the war, and they reunite. They help bring him over, and, of course, they reignite the love affair. And here's the point. The husband uh, dies and, in his will, forbade her to remarry. And Mm. so they they wrote in going, like, what are we supposed to do? So, you know, I think the bigger picture here is, do? what happened? Um, well, according to, you know, and this is the other thing about the Bintel, is like, people are writing in what they want to write in. So we don't always know how things turned mm-hmm. out or what, what they did, right? And also, as you pointed out, the advice given is, is forward-oriented. So in the very, very beginning, right, they're, they're giving advice to people, helping them understand democracy, helping them understand why it's worth it for them to form a union, helping them understand why it's worth it for them not to break a strike, right? How to talk to their landlord, how to, you know, all kinds of, uh, how to, how to, um, work with political differences and religious differences within the same family, right? They're, they're doing all of that kind of work. At this point in 54, um, it was just like uh, they decided they they weren't. It's, it's, the advice given was you can go to a lawyer and mm-hmm. you can take this to court. And mm-hmm. there's the, the woman, the original wife, the widow now who has the lover, Her decision apparently was that um, they didn't have to get married because they were in love, in fact, and they would live together. They didn't Mm -hmm. need marriage. Oh,
3: that's interesting. Even so long ago. I mean, I say my personal preference as a big fan of advice columns um, is always the ones where there is no option of call a lawyer, call a rabbi, call a therapist, and where it really is like strictly an advice column situation and... Yeah. I mean, the classic would be like somebody has brought in a smelly lunch or whatever. You know what I mean? Like in the office and they microwave the fish and, you know, whatever. Like that's the kind of classic. But like things where there really would be no other expert but an advice columnist who could possibly weigh in. And um that's my yeah. personal, just my personal bias is
0: there. I think that's that's an interesting, for me, that's always very moving also about early journalism and also Jewish journalism. Like there was a role. There is a role that is still really important that Beth serves as the the editor of this um this advice column, it, it 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 sort of points to the role of Yiddish journalism for sure, the forward in particular, and, and just what we were talking about earlier, about like people arriving and really like no clue, not no money, right? In a completely new environment, be that Canada, where my grandparents came to, or you know, America, like they were all of a sudden in, let's say, Western culture. And that's that's not where they came from, right? They're they're no longer under the czar. So, so, you know, how do, how do we do this?
2: And, and I just I want to also just like, can I put in a plug for like your listeners to send us their questions? Bintle at forward.com, right?
1: I got a couple of things, one for for each of you. So I, you know, when you bring up these comments and what the way that Phoebe framed it, right, that often advice columnists are, you know, often being asked questions and nobody else knows. What I find, I think that people find fascinating about it is that they either agree wholeheartedly or they disagree vehemently and that that's part of the the back and forth and the comments and, and all of this stuff and the just the nature of reading them to begin with, um, Hannah, ha have you found any like absolute howlers where you're like how could this be the right advice given the le- long lens of history where you've gone into the archives and said like we- this was not the right advice
0: <laughs> 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 oh god um you know i was going to say we we got a letter one like a couple of things one is true that if a letter was so um, out there, let's say to them, they and somebody was writing in not for advice, but to like, I'll show you, I'm going to send a letter to the Bintel brief. They're going to publish it, and that is going to ruin your day, right? They would keep it going. So, you know, uh, there was uh, in the 20s, there was something called the, the two, the Montreal sisters, actually, which is why it caught my right. attention. And it was two sisters who like, you know, one had brought the other one over as a young immigrant and 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 they settled them in their home and they supported them and everything. And the people gave nothing back, like zero, like wouldn't even babysit the kid when when the original uh, sister who had arrived earlier was was ill, um, like nothing doing. And they, they were just at wit's end. And finally, they kicked the sister out. And now the two families weren't talking. So one sister wrote in first, and then the forward just published it verbatim. Sometimes they would do that and not give advice. And then the other sister wrote in because she had seen it, and she was like, "Well, let me tell you my side, right?" <laughs> so it is not you know it. that just caught my attention as like, oh That's my great. god, this is like Yiddish telenovela. It's just like, yeah. sure. but but also heartbreaking.
2: I would. I mean, I in the in the book collections, I have read letters from people where there was an intermarriage, you know, into a a a Jewish person married a Christian person, and the the. In the, at least in the letters I read, the foreword was very against this. You know, it's like, this will never turn out well. Okay, So that's
3: that's literally <laughs> what I did my uh, doctoral dissertation on was that in 19th century France, uh, intermarriage in Jewish newspapers. It has been. I, although I'm just trying to think. I don't remember any advice columns because I would have loved that and probably been all about that. But I remember a lot of discussion of intermarriage, fiction about intermarriage. But I don't know if the French. We're so into advice columns. Maybe it wasn't literary enough for the French.
0: I think basically you could say like in one sentence, this is basically forward advice. Everybody calm down. (laughs) it's it's not as terrible as you're making it out to be and let's apply a little bit of common sense to you know it's kind of like that like a little bit like you would
1: think that if it's you know yiddish advice it would be the opposite right you know you're not taking this seriously (laughs) enough we need to ratchet this up eight steps in order for like for you to realize the gravity of this situation Um, although i I
2: recently (laughs) had a letter where i invoked one of my father's favorite sayings that and I correct my pronunciation if I'm wrong, uh Hokman Nikkin bang me no tea kettles because this woman's husband was driving her crazy, uh, interfering in in everything she was doing. And she said, like how do I get him to back off? You know, he's micromanaging my life. And I said, Well, my father used to say when that that was happening, bang me no tea kettles, Hokmy Nick and so that's the opposite, right? That, that is calm down. Shut the hell up.
1: Have you had any questions, Beth, that have really stumped you? That you're just like, I don't know how to answer this. We're putting this on the side. Because maybe we can answer them for you. you know? <laughs> like, I,
2: I don't know. <laughs> Good question. Let me think about it for one second. Uh, my colleague actually is tackling a really tricky one today. I was like, I am not going near this one. Um, a young woman wrote in to say that she wants to be more observant but she is enjoying her and i quote slutty behaviors and how does she reconcile these two inclinations this sounds like
1: augustine who says you know oh lord you know please help me repent just not today
3: (laughs) i mean so can i can i try to tackle this one So to me, this seems very similar to the circumcision question in that um, not and I don't mean this in any graphic way. I mean, just in the sense of like religion comes with a long Judaism specifically with a lot of different obligations. And why if there's one thing that, you know, isn't something compatible with your values or life and, you know, what you consider important, then maybe do everything else, you know. And I would say that, like, one thing you could do is and this would be like channeling my many many years of reading and listening to dan savage but like if you're treating the people well why you know that's that's a type of ethical you know and that maybe is the most this person is capable of doing and they're not about to become and also like judaism doesn't have nuns right like it's not a celibacy religion like you know just i, I don't see why somebody couldn't be an observant jew and be you know slutty slutty <laughs>
2: libertine. Uh, well, let's the, use the french libertine. The... <laughs>
1: As the as the resident rabbi in this group, I, I would <laughs> do, say that there are definitely <laughs> people. There are people that would say that it might be problematic to be uh, to be Jewish and slutty. First of all, I think you're absolutely right, Phoebe, and when people have come to me, not with exactly that question, um, but similar stuff, I say start with the things that you're capable of doing yes. and that are comfortable with you and that make you feel good and that actually work This person well. seems build, to be doing what makes you feel base. good, but yes, but, that does not yeah. seem to be the problem. Uh, to start with, yes. I'm saying no in terms of increasing your observance. Yes, <laughs> yes, of course. Um, and I think that there are ways in which you can be observant and slutty. I think that there are ways and in here, which you can channel you hear, that. You're
3: hearing this now from a rabbi, not from <laughs> I think, some I think one can channel right
1: now, like one's me. sluttiness into an observant um, lifestyle. In some way or another, I think it might be, you know, with a long-term partner, potentially. Um, although Esther Perel will tell you that, you know, that that's exactly what you're supposed to do, is you're supposed to figure out how to be, Remember you know, that Avi is in French th-
3: Canada, so it's all a little bit more... <laughs> of uh, course. <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> so, like, you know... I don't think that there's a problem with this. I think that you, you don't become observant overnight. And the thing that I think is here and that she's asking this question, and you always say, as I said before, the question behind the question here is that she clearly feels something wrong, right? If she's bringing it up and she's saying, I want to be more observant. I also like this, but she's saying that I know at some fundamental level that this thing that I like is problematic with this new theology and this new philosophy that I'm adopting. And so I need a way to reconcile that but i know that that reconciliation is not going to come in some sort of like you know libertinism is judy jewish and go do whatever you want
3: we 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 have put the official canadian seal of approval on being a an orthodox slut
1: <laughs> well uh, well maybe you so have positive in the sex but...
3: positive, Se- okay. sex in, pos- in, positive in, in the sex positive sense of the term slut please
1: What's that book called? The Ethical <laughs> Slut, right? We can have the From Slut, right? That would be a good uh, next book uh, that we could write about. Um, we're on a roll here. What's our next uh, letter that we have to answer? <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, oh, gee. Yeah, this, this, I didn't think this was such a complicated one, but my colleagues seem very uh, betwixt and between about it. Uh, a woman, what the heck was her name? I think she said her name was Rivka. Pretty sure it was Rivka. Um, She said that whenever she like has to make a call, like to a credit card company or something, they think she's a man, and they say, "Okay, sir, hang on. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir." And, And it freaks her out, but she doesn't know what to say. I mean, I, I, I can't should remember say, now, whether go she says she has kind them. of a deep voice or not. I mean, and then all I, of I didn't think this entire was such a <laughs> I mean,
3: that, what that does actually, that's a different <laughs> advice, Colin, that I'm not going to digress about now, but that I've written about elsewhere. But um, no, I would say there, that seems like a case where this is somebody who will do well in this gender-neutral future, where people are not, like, it's becoming, at least in Canada a lot more, like, gender-neutral language should be used when possible, and don't say, like, hello, sir, hello, ma'am when somebody comes into a store. I don't know how much that's happening in the state. Or people talk about their partner. Like, most of the people saying this have a ostensibly heterosexual relationship. Partner is just the term used. I would say that, like, this is, in on the one level, like, look to the future. It will get better. People are not going to keep doing this. However, I don't know if that, how much that's the case in the states. I think you can probably correct if this is the case, if it's bothering you, you can correct the person. Um, I think there's just, but I think I would say that like, this would be my sort of blanket advice is that like, you can't also control how the world perceives you. And if you have a voice that is what it is for whatever reason, you can't travel into somebody else's brain and make them hear something that they didn't hear. I would say just the most you can do is correct somebody, but you can't, Change
2: what they hear. Okay, I've got, if you have time, I've got one more really good one I just Please. remembered. Okay, this woman wrote in, she has a crush on the rabbi and she doesn't know what to do. Okay, I got
1: this one. First of all, is the rabbi single?
2: <laughs> she says they're both single, they're both heterosexual. It's perfectly appropriate, except that he's the rabbi.
1: Has the rabbi been single? Like putting in subliminal, uh, like flirtatious messages into the sermon that she, she thinks did is not actually, say that because because that's where you start figuring out right because rabbis and, and we've had we've had um, we had a whole uh, we had a woman on uh, a while ago to talk about this genre of uh, romance novels in the Jewish community and the Jewish romance novel and there's one called Hot Rabbi um, that I read in an hour and a half because it was like it was that that. You think people, people who was was people who are but not it rabbis exactly find that. It so compelling? Well, apparently Jewish people <laughs> okay. do find Jewish romance novels, but, uh, but I'm going to read this jo- there's
3: this genre of romance novel opinion writers, you know, who are hot like, opinion like, writers, yeah, and, and I'm just like, <laughs> um, wow, amazing.
1: Rabbis need to be in relationships too, um, you know, and a complicated and thing? So I'll be honest, and I is guess it okay, that I've been though, in the pulpit, like, I'm married to a pulpit person. The complicated thing is what happens when the uh you you make an advance to the rabbi even in a nice neutral you know appropriate manner and the rabbi says i'm not that interested in you it makes things difficult for the rabbi um congregant relationship and if the relationship works but then it doesn't it also makes it difficult that doesn't mean that one should not um you know potentially do something like that. But I think that you have to be really sure that your, that your advances might be uh, accepted oh, no. or that the relationship okay. might work. No, because in this situation, like I said, or, or you have to be ready to potentially um, have a different relationship with the rabbi. And if he says no, then you say... It's okay. I get it. I know that the things might be awkward. Is there a colleague that I might ask a question to or that I might have an issue with um, that we can have a certain amount of distance because of what I just said? Um, because, because that does muddy the, the waters, but, but rabbis need to be slutty too. <laughs>
3: but couldn't, couldn't it be—okay, can I just make it maybe like a simpler answer, which is it's the same as the workplace romance question. If you're prepared to go to a different congregation, if things get messy— you know, if you're nimble in that way, then you can ask the rabbi out prepared for a yes or a no. I don't think you can ever ask somebody out prepared only for a yes, I think. And like you say, it can become messy even if it is a yes, that yes can become a no or you can, the, the congregant might not like the rabbi anymore. So I think as long as the congregant is prepared to go to a different congregation, um, if they if things get messy, like that would be to me what makes the difference and whether this is worth pursuing or not. If they are much more, connect- if they care so, so much about their belonging in this particular community, then yeah, I think that person is off limits.
2: That's good. All right. I'm going to steal all that. (laughs) Please.
1: (laughs) Beth, Chana, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure. Uh, Thank you you so much. much. Beth, keep it up. Keep adding to the archive for Chana. Chana, keep um, publicizing (laughs) this. What I can't wait for is for the artificial intelligence that is fed the thousands and thousands and thousands of letters in Yiddish of the Bintel Brief that we can then start asking advice to and we'll start dispensing advice based on um, the history of Bintel Brief because I think that that will be uh, a chat GP tea, right, that I will be glad to participate in and ask questions of. And now it's time to show for our Nachas of the Week. Phoebe, what's your Nachas this week?
3: My Nachas is going to be a very uh, Canadian Jewish one, which is that you can get Montreal bagels in Toronto, um, which I just uh, hadn't quite... Figured out until fairly recently and then there i was at saint viator but also on queen west
2: wow so that was and, and but i
3: <laughs> want to talk about how this bagel was served because i think that's kind of interesting um, so this is at a place called cafe 23 on queen west kind of uh, just east of trinity bellwoods park and they serve it it's toasted with melted cheddar so it's a saint viator sesame bagel toasted with melted cheddar and And they ask if you want hot sauce to dip it in. And at first I said no. And then I thought, wait, you know, maybe. So I said yes. And then I dipped the bagel in the the cheese bagel in hot sauce. And that was, uh, yeah, actually kind of good. Um,
1: You started on a high and you're just (laughs) digging yourself deeper and deeper. There's so many things that I have to say about this right now. I'm sorry. (laughs) First point, to a Montrealer, a cheese bagel is not a bagel with cheese on it. It is a very, very specific pastry that is not bagel shaped. It is horseshoe shaped, and it has cheese, uh, sweet cheese stuffing inside of it. It is an amazing delicacy. Secondly, what you are describing is like a grilled <laughs> is it an cheese. An abomination. It's an a, it's a grilled cheese sandwich, basically. Um, okay, some of the other something. bagels at this
3: place had prosciutto on them, so I think I think the abominations uh, uh, we could save, but this <laughs> yeah. this one was uh, kosher style. <laughs> Just, okay, so so what's your nachasavi?
1: Okay, so uh, mine actually is very very similar, but it comes in the exact opposite direction. Very Jewish Canadian, but it starts with something very not Jewish, uh, or somebody very not Jewish, by the name um, a painter by the name of William Kuralec, um who. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a book around the house always uh, that he had co-written. He was a painter, so he was doing the illustrations. And Abraham Arnold uh, wrote the essay that was part of this called Jewish Life in Canada. Abraham Arnold was the director of the Canadian Jewish Congress for Western Canada, I believe. He was a longtime Congress administrator and senior level executive. Uh, I think uh, somebody write in and correct me if I'm wrong um, or how wrong I am. Um, but William Kurilek was a Ukrainian Orthodox turned Roman Catholic painter who uh, painted these beautiful pastoral scenes of Jewish life, and he um, has a retrospective now at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection. Go check it out. And um, I know this because I just got a copy of the book that was sort of accompanying almost the book catalogue for this exhibit, Um, and it brought me back to my childhood because I remember this thin little volume with a black cover with these beautiful, very pastoral paintings of Jewish life in Canada, and it had Didn't occur to me that this guy wasn't Jewish um, because I was a kid and I hadn't seen these paintings in probably 35 years. And I just got this book um, given to me and I flipped through it and it just brought everything back to me. So uh, I believe the exhibit is gone right now, but um, you can check it out. I believe there is a uh, retrospective or a piece about it in the CJN magazine. The summer Uh,
3: issue. The summer issue has a whole bunch about that and some images of these Artworks as well.
1: Great show. So much fun this time. Great, great fun. Absolutely.
3: Nice chatting, Avi.
1: Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending July 15th, Shabbat Parashat Matot Maase. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We're a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca/slash bonjour. And you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We really would love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is always one of the best ways that we get new listeners. And please email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca.